The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Not too bad, Father. Great good, to be here. Yes. Good to see you. Yes, I know you wanted to begin tonight with some uh, prayer requests, Father. Yes, well, one uh, request in particular, although there are many of them, okay? But uh, I'd ask you again to uh, continue your prayers for Father Dolan, Father Shikata. Uh Father Dolan himself died on August, uh, I'm sorry, April 26th of this year, rather suddenly. And uh, when I first asked for prayers for him, um, we had actually just lost uh, a long time, well, not just acquaintance, but a parishioner, but actually a friend. Uh, many years, um, because I, I'm convinced because of the COVID vaccine. So I, I voiced uh, a question, which I should have kept in my own mind, about Father Dolan's sudden death. I, I was just wondering if the vaccine might have something to do with it. So I was just uh, asking the question, really, and not knowing what Father Dolan's position on that was. Since then, I've received a couple of uh, contacts from some uh, charitable listeners, uh, informing me that Father Dolan was, in fact, absolutely opposed to the vaccines and did not get them, would not get them, and um, that um, that had nothing to do with um, the heart issues that took his life. So, uh, I mean, it, it's sad enough, um, but I was glad to have that information. I appreciate them informing me of that because I didn't know, okay? <clears throat> but I thought I would pass that on. Uh, um, <clears throat> the fact that uh, Father Dolan was completely opposed to the vaccines, um, which I was glad to hear, but uh, unfortunately, uh, of course, he did pass away. And I ask you to please keep his soul and the soul of Father Chikara in your prayers as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for that, Father. Um, I know there were a couple of current events that you wanted to cover tonight, uh, Father. So I thought we well, there's much in the news that. about uh, the raid and... Uh, Mara Lago, mm -hmm. uh, Trump's residence down in uh, the Palm Beach area, West Palm Beach. And uh, I know the news has pretty much been dominated by that. Um, and uh, people are calling it a, a, a witch hunt. Okay. But, of course, the, the, those on the left and those who are responsible for this, notably Gardner, referring to, uh, you know, this the search with the judges, uh, uh, warrant, uh, what they're looking for, they're looking for documents, uh, allegedly, that uh, they think uh, President Trump should not have taken from the White House, or should not be keeping in his personal possession, if I understand correctly what they were after. <clears throat> but um, we, we have to remember, when they, when they talk about witch hunt now, generally, uh, they're, I think, abusing the term in the sense that they... In the old days, a witch hunt was actually people looking for witches, right? And of course, that was considered to be 
a uh, an atrocity because uh, the witches weren't really there. They were just kind of branding people witches and going after them. <clears throat> but I think today uh, the term witch hunt really has a different significance because today it's, it's the witches who are doing the hunting. <clears throat> so it, when we talk about a witch hunt today, we're talking about um, uh, the witches actually pursuing the hunt and finding finding crimes, looking for crimes. Um, so um, without without the evidence, but they're 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 looking actually searching for crimes to charge people with. And I I th wouldn't be surprised, but that this is exactly a, a case of that right now. So um, I uh, would also ask for prayers for uh, uh, President Trump and his and his family because they're being targeted, no doubt about it. And uh, I think the purpose is to to ramp up the. Um, the tensions in the country, perhaps even provoke a reaction which would justify the imposition of martial law or suspending the elections coming up in a few months. So uh, we have to be very, very careful about our response to such provocations. Um, right here in Cincinnati, uh, just the other day, uh, some poor, deluded fellow, 42 years old, evidently tried to um, Bursted into the uh, the Cincinnati uh, FBI office. He was carrying a nail gun, and uh, they they said an AR-15 like weapon, whatever that <laughs> is. Okay, <clears throat> and uh, but I mean the the whole idea is is so absurd. You know, you wonder what madness would leave some lead someone to do something like that, and what on earth he thought he would accomplish by it, except for again ramping up the fears, suspicions, and give the left an opportunity to impose more draconian restrictions and to, um, well, just to, to label uh, more people, uh, you know, as uh, threats and dangers, uh, security threats. So uh, we have to be very careful about our response. Uh, one response that we should always have, the immediate response we should always have is prayer. We should turn to God and ask Almighty God to give the graces where they're needed. And um, they certainly are needed today. So I, uh, if, if nothing else, uh, if people do nothing else, so they can think of nothing else to do, one thing they, they must do is to pray. And I certainly suggest that they, they reach for the rosaries. Uh, that's the first thing they should do, okay? Maybe not the last, but it's the first thing they should do is reach for the rosaries and pray the rosary. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. Well, the comment on the on uh, the Miralago caper. Okay, all right, sounds good. Thank you for that, Father. We uh, we also wanted to just touch on tonight a uh, a bit of a follow up to our last program where we talked about the uh, the book Murder in the Thirty Third Degree by Father Charles Moore, and uh, we had an interesting email we received from a viewer who was actually in contact with Father Moore, and she. Um, posed the question to him about Paul the Sixth and said there seems to be some kind of um, dishonesty maybe here in, in the way that uh, that uh, Father Moore portrays Paul the Sixth as a very good man, a very saintly man, someone who uh, cared very deeply about the church, um, very spiritual, and yet he uh, did nothing about this, this Masonic um, infiltration into the church that he knew of, was well aware of, was presented, um, as we mentioned in the last program, the, the three volumes. Of, uh, of information about it, did nothing about it, um, essentially left the church in, in, that, in that state and, and passed away. 
Um, so this this viewer was um, was posing this question to Father Murray and wanted to get his, his response on how he could you know extol Father Six while at the same time admitting that he uh, was so reluctant to do anything about this problem that he was so well aware of. And Father Murray actually responded to our viewer and um, very interesting to read through uh, some of the response which which uh, we have a, a copy of and um, I could just just sum sum of it up, Father he. Uh, Father Murray's reasoning for supporting Paul VI is he, he says essentially that people change over time. He says that, uh, you know, maybe Paul VI was a, a more liberal man in his youth, but uh, he became more conservative as, as time went on. And he, um, I, I guess, sticks to his position that uh, Paul VI was a very, very good, very saintly, very holy man. He suffered very much for the church. And, uh, but his main point is that Father, or, uh, Paul VI changed a lot. And by the end of his life, um, Paul VI was very well aware of all the problems that were going on in the church, um, detested them, uh, but was, was unable to do anything about them because this, this change of heart that he had came about too late. It was too late in his life. He was too old to do anything about it. He couldn't do anything about it. And so, essentially, he was justified in leaving the church in this, this manner. So, I know you, you obtained a copy of the response as well, Father. You read through some of it. What was your, um, what was your reaction to what Father Murray said about Paul VI? Well, I'm, I'm glad the uh, question was directed to Father Moore, because I think it is a very important question. And uh, I didn't actually read the entire question, because it was rather lengthy. Uh, the writer actually included a lot of references of what Paul VI had done to the Church. And um, I did re read Father Moore's uh, response in full, and um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, my impression of Father Moore, whom, whom I've never met, uh, he was born just three months before I was, so I, I think we were in the same age group, certainly. <laughs> so, um, is, my impression of him is that he's a very affable, amiable, and charitable soul, right? He says that he himself has changed a lot in the course of the years, but I would say even the book that... Um, he wrote, uh, Murder in the 33rd Degree, um, recounting as it does conversations and actions and so on, of years ago, I would say that, you know, that probably, that, that applied to him back then too, that he was an amiable and affable and, um, and um, good traveling companion and uh, good table companion and uh, a charitable soul. I get the impression that he wants to say something good about everybody. Which is not a bad trait to have, really, as opposed to wanting to say something bad about everybody. Yeah. Uh, so that's an admirable trait, really. And he's trying to avoid... Um, well, I, I got the impression that... that he was kind of avoiding answering the question. You mentioned dishonest. That th there was some thought of dishonesty, but I, I, I don't believe that. Uh, of course, um, I, I don't think you do anyway, either, necessarily. I think that would be gratuitous to assign that. But I think there is maybe an avoidance of a very serious question that needs to be addressed. <clears throat> In spite of everything, that when all is said and done, uh, everything that Father Moore says here may be, uh, you know, quite accurate in his estimation of Paul VI. But... Um, the question still remains. It's, a, it's, it's an inevitable question. Why would Paul VI have kind of reigned over this 
and brought it all into being in a sense that that the people the, the persons whom father um Murat is talking about is doing this damage in the church were actually elevated almost almost to a man by paul the sixth uh putting them in, in positions of power in the in the, the church and um keeping them there and then uh when he discovered that uh, if it was a matter of discovery that uh, they were masons and that they were out to murder the church why did he not immediately take action um you know again wouldn't this not point to some law somewhere uh even even if it were a matter that well he had a change of heart later on when he realized what was happening he saw that the smoke had entered into the sanctuary filled the sanctuary and uh, maybe he felt overwhelmed by it. Uh, maybe he felt that he was sick, old, and so on. But actually, this was his doing to a great extent. And he felt he didn't feel the responsibility of uh, using even what power he had in order to rectify it or expose it, to warn the people. I mean, basically, he had turned the worship of the church over to uh this this land, land workshop basically of this mad uh mason bonini right <clears throat> to produce a masonic form of worship even bonini was quoted as saying he wanted to create a liturgy that was acceptable to modern secular western man but that's not catholic sorry but it's the fact is it's not catholic that's mason masonry <laughs> And um, um, so, why would Paul VI, real, you know, be, actually come to the realization for the, for the previous five years, from 1968 maybe until 1974, when Bonini was denounced as a Mason and Paul VI exiled him to Iran? Uh, why did Paul VI let stand all of this Mason's work in producing this? Masonic worship, not Catholic, actually Masonic worship to be the death knell to um, replace the Catholic worship. Um, and then let it go on that the Catholic worship was forbidden and only the Masonic worship could be used. That question will not go away. Um, and um, I, I, Father Moore does not actually address that question. You know, Tom, and actually, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. In the process of, uh, of uh, like looking through some things that I'd written before, and I wasn't looking to find the, anything, but I did. I found something that uh, related to this whole issue of what Father Moore writes in his book. If I could just read it, read it for you, I think it actually would be more efficient that way because it would take me longer to try to explain it. But this was written years ago and it appeared in uh, one of our Immaculate Conception Church bulletins. And it says this, Archbishop, later Cardinal Giovanni Benelli, was very involved in the creation of the new order in the church. Remember, Cardinal Benelli is kind of... Uh, uh, I would say one of the heroes of uh, Father Moore back then, as was uh, Archbishop Gagnon, 
But it is it is true to say Archbishop uh, Benelli, Cardinal, later Cardinal Benelli, was very involved in the creation of the new order in the church. He served as personal secretary to Giovanni Battista Montini, who became Paul VI, right? During his 15 years as Paul VI, he concluded Vatican Council II and revolutionized the Mass and the sacraments. Archbishop Benelli held the post of Deputy Vatican Secretary of State from 1967 to 1977, so a period of 10 years. And during his tenure in that capacity, he was visited by Eric de Saventhem, founding president of International Federation Univoce, who expressed his concerns to Archbishop Benelli about the new liturgy of Paul VI. Dr. de Saventhem later wrote that the Archbishop told him the difference between the new Mass and the traditional Mass was a difference of, quote, ecclesiology. At that point, Dr. de Saventhem relates, he expressed his amazement at Archbishop Benelli's statement with the words, Your Excellency, what you have said is an enormity. The Archbishop was puzzled, Dr. de Saventhem said, at his, Dr. de Saventhem's strong reaction. And he repeated his statement that the two liturgies represented two different ecclesiologies. When you know what ecclesiology is, you understand why Dr. DeSeventhem found it so extraordinary, shocking even. And so he was even more shocked, perhaps, that Cardinal Benelli didn't see a problem with it. Or at that time, Archbishop Benelli wondered why he was shocked. Ecclesiology is the theology of the church. It tells us what the Catholic Church is, the very nature and purpose of the church's existence, her constitution, her mission. Uh, this is the, the tract in theology that it actually can, teaches seminarians and future priests what the church is teaching um, is about herself, what the church says the church is. And um, so it goes to the very heart of the existence of the church, the very essence of the church. Dr. DeSaventhem reacted so forcefully to Archbishop Benelli's statement because the prelate was saying that the New Order Mass and the traditional Catholic Mass stood for two different concepts of what the church is. You can actually see that beginning in Vatican II, but it certainly is manifest for all to see in the, in the two liturgies. And now we can see clearly the significance of Cardinal Benelli's words. Uh, Francis, First great official statement, the joy of the gospel, addressed exactly that question, what the Catholic Church is, or rather what Francis thinks the Church should be, and what he wants to make of the Church. Some call Francis's um, uh, apostolic exhortation, joy of the gospel, Francis's manifesto. When the current communist dictator of Cuba recently visited Francis, this was years ago now, of course, in the Vatican and announced that he thought he might also become a Catholic, while remaining a communist, Francis gifted him a copy of his manifesto, Joy of the Gospel, saying to Ra Raul Castro, there is much in here that you will like. Well, no doubt. And those who are attempted to find a crack in the wall of the Novus Ordo Church 
where they can practice the traditional Catholic religion as part of the New Order Church, should remember Cardinal Benelli's statement. There are two different concepts of the Church involved here. If they seek to practice their faith within the control and authority of the New Order, they will thereby acknowledge the New Order concept of the Church, a hodgepodge of conflicting rights and wrongs, a deeply flawed institution which is trying to find its way to Christ, an evolving organization which is trying to reconcile its past with its present and its future. This is precisely the modernist understanding of the Church. It's really the Church in search. It is the understanding with which a generation of conservative young adults in the New Order have been raised and which still influences their thinking. Francis followed up his exhortation, The Joy of the Gospel, with his World Youth Day address in which he told the tens of thousands of young people to, quote, make a mess in the church. Francis is leading the way in making the mess, making a mess of the church. No traditional Catholic can agree with Francis's vision of a dirty church of a new order. And so, uh, Cardinal Ben, well, at that time, Archbishop Benelli <clears throat> expressed it very well when he, he said to Dr. Eric de Saventham um, that uh, the difference between the well, old Mass and the new, the traditional Mass and, and Paul VI's new Mass, is a difference of ecclesiology. You have the one Mass that is actually the work of the Church, the Holy Ghost in the Church. You have the other liturgy, which is the work of a Freemason and who uh, wants the death of the church, the destruction of the church, and the complete end of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, is it a matter of taking your pick? Well, it's a matter of uh, choosing between heaven and hell, essentially. Um, and you know, Father Moore actually alludes to that in his book. When he talks about Benelli's creation of the new Mass, he turned to Don Morini, and he asked him, you mean, we're actually asked to accept a liturgy that we created by a Freemason who was already excommunicated from the church because he's a Freemason. And then when he dies, he would lose his soul. And we're supposed to go along with this new Mass. And actually, the question he asked was, in other words, we're supposed to do this. And Don Marini's response was, no, not in other words. That's exactly what we're expected to do. So, I mean, I think there we actually do get a glimpse into uh, Father or Don Moore's actually actual thinking, okay? Uh, when he maybe lets his guard down <laughs> to actually express the gravity of the situation. Um, but um, in any case, uh, again, I, I was somewhat disappointed. We're not going to read the letter word for word. Uh, unless we've got the okay to do so, I think. Um, but um, Don Morris' response does not actually respond to the question that the, the uh, inquirer uh, posed to him. Um, and um, I don't know, I, I'd like to actually pose the question myself face to face. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to have some pretty good discussion about it. Yeah. You know, you know what's at stake here, Tom. Um, 
what's at stake here is the very concept of the church, but also the very concept of the papacy. This is really what is at stake here. I mean, you have conservative, New Order, Catholics who are, many of them still have the faith, actually. Um, and there's a conflict between what they believe and their practice, the Novus Ordo. But you find that, and I find that idea a fundamentally dangerous idea, modernist idea, kind of expressed in Don Murray's book. Is he a modernist? I don't think so. I think he would definitely not want to be a modernist. But you see, this whole idea of, well, I, he doesn't come out and say it, but modernism in the, is actually an idea, uh, the modernists who are pretending to be Catholics, or even think of themselves as Catholics, think in terms of being Catholic by degrees. Now, he talks about murder in the 33rd degree. I guess you can have murder by degree, too. And that might well have been murder by decree, as well as degree. But the very essential modernist idea is that you can be Catholic by degrees. And the modernists of the new church have canonized that idea. When they start talking about the different religions and different um, churches of the world, uh, whether they're in communion with them or in partial communion with them, and so they actually have introduced this idea of being in partial communion. What does that mean in terms of faith as defined by the Catholic Church? It doesn't have any meaning at all. Yeah. Only in the term of modernist understanding of what faith means as a certain kind of intuitive experience of the divine in, in the course of your lifetime. <laughs> Only in, in that sense can you talk about being Catholic, Christian, anything, by degrees. Um, but, I mean, look, the whole world has gone that way. I mean, now you're, you're male or female by degree. You know? A little bit of that, a little bit of that. John Paul II, even in his uh, Wednesday audiences, was talking about the uh, androgynous character of the human being, that everybody's sort of androgynous, male and female, a mixture of male and female. And uh, you go back and you read those back in the uh, you know late seventies, very late seventies, early early eighties, and you can imagine Catholic pilgrims who are going there for some very pious talk to inspire them, like a retreat uh, conference. And and he's waxing on and on and about this uh, androgynous uh, dimension of every human life. For, you know, they must have been thinking, what in the world is going on here? This was the foundation of his theology of the body, by the way. Um, so, this I, you know, what, what could lend itself more to this idea of the kind of gradation between the male and the female, and you're getting in touch with your feminine side and all the rest, you know? As so there's, there's the yin and the yang in everybody. Um, and and, and it, look at back at the Roe versus Wade. Again, you have the human by degree, human by degrees. Read the Roe versus Wade decision, and they talk about potential human life. So, as the child grows in the womb, he becomes more human, and human by degrees, right? And the existentialist would say the more a person uses his own will to decide his future, decide his present and his future, 
that person is more human. So the whole idea, again, you're human by degree. We read an article by uh, an author in Salon magazine. She wrote it years ago. And uh, she said, well, the ch yes, it is a child in the womb. I acknowledge, acknowledge that. And uh, those who are pro-abortion should stop denying it. That makes them look foolish, makes them look dishonest. It's a child. It's clearly a child. It's just that that child's life is not, is not as important as mine. My, my life is more human than that child's life. And so I'm choosing my life over the life of that child. And that's essentially what she said. So again, again we get to be human by degrees. And uh, so it's like the whole world has kind of followed this modernist way of thinking. <clears throat> evolutionary way of thinking. And um, in the process of, and, and Francis himself has ushered that whole thinking in, into his, his own personal Francis theology. But the church is constantly adjusting her morality, constantly developing her morality, which means that she's constantly changing her morality, developing morality <clears throat> as time goes on. It's evolving. Um, again, it's an unmistakable uh, characteristic of Francis' whole way of thinking. So, um, you know, we, we have these, uh, the big burning controversy these days about the papacy. And um, we see what's happening before our very eyes is that Catholic people who have the Catholic faith are trying to find a way to fit Francis into the Catholic papacy. But what they're doing is they're actually distorting the idea of the papacy in order to fit Francis. And uh, they're actually um, doing these mental gymnastics and actually doctrinal gymnastics. They're trying to say, well, we used to think popes couldn't do that, but now we know they can because Francis is pope. So, you know, rather than say, well, popes can't do that, therefore that raises a question, is that Francis really could be the pope? No, they, they will not allow that question to be asked. Uh, the question is, well, the only question is, what is the papacy, and what is it going to be when Francis is finished with it? Because they are adjusting their belief in the papacy to fit Francis and what he does. And they say, well, you know, we, we never really understood the papacy before, but Francis does, and what he does, well, that's the papacy, and so that's the new papacy. By the time they're done, there's not going to be any papacy left. By the time Francis is done, there will be no office of the papacy left. Uh, he's attacking the very institution of the papacy. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we, have, we have to protect the Catholic teaching, the traditional Catholic teaching of the papacy, and we have to protect it from Francis and from these conservative New Order Catholics who, who are letting him savage the papacy and change it. They don't realize it at all, but what they're doing actually is, is they're falling right into the trap of the modernists. They're adjusting their belief to fit what the modernists are doing. And the modernists are actually making modernists out of them, even as they convince themselves they're trying to hold on to the traditional faith. Their faith is actually being changed in the modernist direction. Um, because if they, if they can leave behind the, the old traditional Catholic concept of papacy and accept Francis's new definition of the papacy, well, they're actually doing what Francis himself is doing. They are adjusting doctrine 
to fit modern needs, uh, to fit modern times. Um, they are evolving in their concept of the papacy. Very, very fundamental uh, position of the modernists. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's actually very clever in that they, the modernists are pushing ahead with Francis at the tip of the spear here. And uh, within in the orbit there, they have these conservative and traditional-minded people who are trying to hold on to the traditional faith and even practice the traditional religion within the Novus Ordo. But they're actually being kind of dragged along by the modernists. Uh, there's kind of a vortex that's drawing them, drawing them along after the modernists because they have to, in order to somehow work out this contradiction in their own minds, they have to make adjustments there to what they actually believe, in this case, the concept of the church and its ecumenism, the concept of the papacy as an institution. It's the only way they can survive in the modern church. So the modernists are having their way and they're actually corrupting the faith of even these good people. Father, in, in reading through Father Father Murray's res response um, and his take on on Paul VI, I was I was you know in his, his defense of him and um, seemingly trying to make excuses for him. Essentially, um, I was reminded of a uh, a previous program I think a couple of years ago, where mm -hmm. a, a viewer um, sent us a lot of information uh, purporting to show that that John the Twenty Third was in fact some a, a very great conservative and that. Paul the sixth was uh, was in fact the one who you know took the church in the liberal in the liberal direction, and um, we see that a lot. You know, same John Paul the second. You know, so many say, oh, he was such a great, great, great saint. Um, clearly, saint, very holy man, and so on. But um, why could this not be the case? I mean, you in in previous programs, you yourself have said that you don't believe uh, the Novus Ordo pontiffs ha are Freemasons. Um, that seems somewhat verified in what uh, Father Murr said, where, you know, Paul VI himself was the one who commissioned the study. So why can't we say that, you know, these Novus Ordo pontiffs, uh, you know, they're, they're not Masons themselves. Um, they, uh, you know, there's just all of these Masons in the church, and these are the ones who are, you know, driving the, the so-called reforms of the church. And the Novus Ordo pontiffs that we have are just maybe simply weak men. They might be very individually holy men, um, which, you know, doesn't take away anything from the authenticity of their papacy. Um, so why can't we say that they're just weak men? They're true, valid popes. Um, they're, just, they're just too weak to combat this huge Masonic influence in the church. Why can't we say that? We can say that. Wouldn't necessarily be true. We can say it. People do say it. Yeah. Do you People are saying that. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I think Father Moore is kind of um, saying that too. I mean, after all, he talked about John Paul II being elected after the death of uh, the sudden and uh, unexplained death of Albino, Albino Luciani, the Pope, uh, John Paul I, right? And um, at the end, um, uh, Father Murray says that uh, John Paul II was a, was a terrible Pope. He was a bad Pope. He spent his time traveling around the world while the Masons were basically running the show back in the Vatican, <laughs> kind of running the church. And oddly enough, I mean, Father Moore says uh, John Paul II was basically a failure as a pope, but, but he's, a, he's a great saint. But how is it possible? I mean, even the very nature of sanctity is, is being changed here. I mean, even that statement, and it's in the book, as I recall, 
and probably in some of his uh, interviews too, that John Paul II was a bad pope because he didn't take care of the church as he should have. He was like the absentee parent. Um, and basically left, left the foxes to run the hen house, and as I said last week. Um, but bad pope as he was, he, he's a great saint. Um, how does that work? Well, as a Catholic, it doesn't, right? In the, in the mind of the Catholic Church with regard to sanctity, it doesn't work, because uh, you have to have extraordinary and heroic sanctity in fulfilling your responsibilities, I mean, that's the first thing, first obligation you have in justice, let alone charity, is to fulfill your obligations, especially to God, <laughs> to our Lord. <clears throat> and you can't say, well, he really uh, did a terrible job of being the Pope and taking care of the church, which was his great responsibility that he freely accepted, but he became a great saint doing it. Um, that doesn't work. So, you know, but, but it does work in the Novus Ordo, because in the Novus Ordo, they've changed the very definition of sanctity. Sanctity means being a nice guy. <clears throat> you're amiable, you're affable, a good table companion, uh, you know, happy, fun to be around, <laughs> you know, and you're just cheerful and, and nice to everybody. And uh, this constitutes heroic virtue and great sanctity. Uh, but it's not, not, not for Catholics, you know, uh, that's not what made St. Francis of Assisi or St. Clair, whose feast day is today, St. Pius X, St. Pius V, it's not what made them saints, right? It's not what made St. Saint Peter a saint, uh, St. Paul, either one of them, you know, they were not always affable, amiable, and good table companions, as St. Paul would charge St. Peter. Uh, but they were great saints, because uh, they served our Lord with all their heart and soul. Um... So we're dealing with, again, modernism, and we're dealing with the Novus Ordo thinking here, but it's crept into people who largely really have the faith and are trying to find a way to reconcile. That's it. They're trying to find a way to live with this. You know, when they, the permanent instruction of the Alta Medita came out of the lodges of the Freemasons in Italy, the Carbonari, uh, back in the early 1800s, uh, the writer, whose code name was Nubius, uh, gave the instruction that they should be working to infiltrate the church, rise through the ranks in the church, gain control uh, by becoming leaders in the convents, leaders in the seminaries, leaders in the dioceses, leaders in the curia surrounding the pope, and finally, that they would actually choose a pope who would be not one of them, but we would think like one of them. And he said that explicitly. He said, we don't want a pope who is one of us and who knows what our designs are. He said, because the risk would be too great that he could expose the whole thing. But what we want to do is we want to kind of fashion a man according to our desires. He says, look, we have to start by creating a generation we have to work on the current generation of young people, and we have to form them. And then generation by generation, as we keep forming them with our thoughts, we're going to get somebody we can elect as, the, as a pope who thinks exactly like one of us without actually necessarily being one of us. And that's the ideal, he said. That's what we have to hope for. He even said in the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, in the actual statement of his instructions to the Masons of Italy, that 
there was a pope that they wouldn't want. He mentioned Alexander VI. I mean, we're told that Alexander VI was a, a uh, very worldly pope, uh, great politician, and uh, his personal life was very immoral. We're told this, okay, about him. And yet, for all of his failures, uh, which I think are overdrawn, or overdone by the enemies of the church, Nubius said, we don't want a pope like him. Because in the end, he always had the interest of the church, protecting the church at heart. Even though he might not have lived a very good Catholic life, he never justified immorality. Right? He might have lived, well, according to the, uh, the, the rumors and the and, uh, charges against him by historians, he might have lived a very immoral life, fathering children and so on, out of wedlock, obviously. But he never made fathering children out of wedlock a virtue. You know, it was still something that was condemned. So, uh, but there was a man who Nubius said they should strive to get uh, one just like him. There was a pope who was so much under their control, he held him up as the example of what they should hope for again, if it is still possible, he says. And that, that pope was Clement Fourteenth. Clement XIV uh, was pope in the latter half of the 1700s. And he was the pope who suppressed the Jesuit order throughout the world. Uh, the Masons had been pressing very hard on Pope uh, Clement XIII to suppress the Jesuits, but Clement XIII understood what the Masons were after. And uh, during, during the reign of Pope Clement XIII, uh, the Prime Minister of Portugal, the Prime Minister of Spain, Prime Minister of, of, uh, of France, all suppressed the Jesuits in their, in their realms. And they were pressing very hard to get the Pope, Clement XIII, to suppress the Jesuits, but he wouldn't do it. He stood up against them. They couldn't break him, no matter what pressure. He was also the Pope who spread devotion to the Sacred Heart, by the way. Um, he he uh, was the Pope who approved the first national celebration of the Feast of the Sacred Heart in Poland. There's a connection there, really. But uh, the next Pope, Clement XIV, did suppress the Jesuits very soon after he got in power. And uh, it's interesting to read the document by which he suppressed the Jesuits. Uh, and it's very ironic. History is full of irony. You know, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned the irony with regard, regarding to Card Cardinal Benelli. His arch nemesis after the death of Cardinal Viau was Casaroli, who actually uh, succeeded to be the Secretary of State in the Vatican. And um, there was this real sharp opposition between the two of them, because Benelli, even though he was in favor of the Novasordo, did not like the, the politics, as it were, of Casaroli and the, and the Freemasons and what they were trying to do to the Church. <coughs> Well, when Cardinal Benelli died, guess who offered his funeral? Guess who buried him? Casseroli. That, to me, is the height of irony, and it's particularly sad, you know, uh, that Casseroli should have survived, actually, to, as the Cardinal Secretary of State of uh, the, the Catholic Church, uh, supposedly burying the one who tried might and Maine to stop him. Uh, how... how 
Casserole must have gloated over that. Well, hundreds of years before that, uh, a couple hundred years before that, um, Pope uh, Clement XIII actually uh, was, was uh, moved to elevate a man, a Franciscan friar, to a cardinal. And he was moved to elevate that, that Franciscan friar to a cardinal by the head of the Jesuits, whose name was Father Ricci, R-I-C-C-I, Father Ricci, moved Pope uh, Clement XIII to make a cardinal out of this Franciscan. Well, this Franciscan then went on to become the next, become Pope Clement XIV, and succeeded Clement XIII, obviously. And the, one of the first things he did early in his papacy was to suppress the Jesuits and to imprison Father Ricci. Uh, I mean, I, I find it just the height of irony myself, anyway. But uh, in any case, this was pretty much the death of the Jesuits. They were reconstituted for 40 years later, but they were never the same. They were never the same. And now they've become completely um, modernized and modernist. Um, why am I mentioning this? Because um, this, this Ganganelli, that's the name of his family, okay, Clement the third, 14th, this Ganganelli is the one who is named by the Mason back in the early 1800s as the kind of man they want to have again. Because he, he says in his instruction that Ganganelli gave himself over to our power completely. And he could be controlled by flattery, and he could be controlled by fear. Threatened, they could threaten him. And they controlled him. And you read the document of the suppression of the Jesuits, and it's very curious because he gets to the explanation of why he's suppressing the Jesuit. And ultimately what he says that we're doing this, we're suppressing the Jesuits, among other incidental things, for reasons that are personal and buried within our heart. And that's it. He suppresses the, the uh, entire religious order of the Jesuits. Uh, just like that, he snuffs it out. Makes them all criminals, basically. They were all rounded up like criminals after that. Everywhere they were in the world. Throughout the missions. <clears throat> it was very, very tragic. Very tragic event. But Ganganelli uh, basically, as Nubia said, handed himself over, bound hand and foot into the control of the Masons. They want some, they want someone like that. Again. Well, they've got him. They've got one who uh, thoroughly serves their purposes in Francis. But, they, but still, they said they didn't want him to be a member of the Masons. They, they just wanted him to be probably the best Mason in the world without actually being, being a member. And Francis really outmasons the Masons, in things that he says. Right? They, 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 they love him. He's their champion. They praise him. They, they, they applaud him. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the Masons canonized anybody. They eventually canonized Francis. Right? Of course, Francis will canonize himself before he's not here, I suppose. But anyway, Tom, in the midst of all this, um, you know, we, we have to um, keep our faith and not go looking for explanations that don't work. Because eventually they run out. People cannot live with contradictions all this time. 
And uh, people lose, lose their faith over these things. And that's why, you know, I asked Father Murr, well, you know, you say you read the book, the Bible, and you know how it ends, and we win, or Christ wins, and I understand that. But right now, there are people who are actually being scandalized by all this, and they're losing their faith over it. And um, <clears throat> they're raising a generation of the children in a Novus Ordo with, with the worship created by a Freemason. And um, we need to be concerned about that. I mean, we can't just say, well, uh, personally, we'll be a tr traditionalist, but we'll kind of keep it to ourselves and just kind of fly under the radar and go along to get along for the time being, because we know how it all ends, right? Um, but that is basically uh, sacrificing a, a lot of hostage souls to the modernists. And I, I think what we need to do in a case like this, uh, with all due respect to Father Moore and those who, who you know think like him, I think we have to be on the housetops and we have to ex explain what's happening. Warn people, this is not the Catholic Church speaking. Don't be scandalized in thinking that this is the vicar of Christ on earth. Don't be scandalized in thinking that this is um, the church that Christ established doing these things. <clears throat> because it's not. I mean, this is, this is basically international Freemasonry doing it. And they want to turn the church into basically a uh, doing business as under Freemasonry. <laughs> Um, so, anyway, I think that's the, really, the charitable thing to do now, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Be very forthright and truthful about it. Yeah. But, in any case, um, there's a lot more that can be said, and you know I'm more than willing to say it, given the opportunity, but... Uh, what about anything positive, okay. anything good or uplifting, Father? <laughs> well, uh, what Father Moore says about reading the book, the Bible, of course, the book, and knowing that Christ does tr triumph, we know that. And the Immaculate Heart of Mary will triumph, too. Um, that doesn't give us uh, the license to sit back and say, well, I'm a spectator, let's just watch and, you know, see how the game turns out. Because we know we end. We win in the end, you know. <laughs> so uh, we have to stand up for the faith. We have to preach the faith. We have to live the faith. <clears throat> and we have to try to convince people to come back, well, those who knew the faith, they're old enough to remember, right, what the church was and how the church practiced her faith before the changes came in. We have to try to convince them to return to the practice of the faith they knew. And those who are too young to remember that, we have to try to convince them to just basically come to that faith and recognize this is the true historical Catholic faith. <clears throat> That has been, uh, basically, its place has been usurped by what Father Murr tells you. And he knows, uh, as Freemasons. Maybe even Paul VI acknowledged that. The smoke of Satan, right? Through some fissure in the wall has filled the sanctuary of God. Father Murr says this is what Paul VI was referring to. And I think he knows, he knows his stuff. He knows he's talking about it. I think he knows the mind of Paul VI in that. Um, so, I mean, the evidence is there that what we're saying is true, that this is not Catholicism, it was never meant to be, it was meant to be the replacement for Catholicism. And uh, for those who would, would be Catholic, we have to go back to practice the traditional faith, period. <clears throat> so we're sounding the clarion call, we're ringing the bell, we're sounding the trumpets, we're just trying to get people to answer the call, to, um, <clears throat> to just flee from that, Sodom and Gomorrah, <laughs> and and uh, to uh, find 
refuge and really the promised land, really, that is the traditional, practicing the traditional Catholic faith with its mass, the true sacrifice of Calvary, and its sacraments. Uh, who would have thought that there would come a time when that was considered to be outrageous, unacceptable, right? Worthy of being schismatic. Who would have thought it would come to something like that? That did, when, you, when you suggest that people practice the traditional Catholic faith of all those centuries, that for the very idea that, that you're expressing this idea, that you are totally at variance with the powers that be in the Vatican. Inconceivable. Um, but well, how could we say anything less in light of what's happening in the world and the church today? Um, so just as uh, you know, President Biden is making a mockery of the, paper, of, the, of the presidency, so Francis is making a mockery of the papacy. Uh, but we refuse to join in the mockery. We refuse to uh, applaud him in mocking the papacy, mocking the church. We, we'll hold fast to the church. And you know why? Because we believe. I mean, we're, we're, we're facing the reality of the situation in the church. And it's awful. Father Murr talks about that. Don Marini talked about that. Gagnon, Archbishop Gagnon talked about that. The terrible, terrible straits the church is in right now. We're facing that. But you know, we have faith. We know that Christ wins. We don't know how, because we don't understand the, gra the greatness of his power. But we know he has that power. And like Peter, who spoke up when our Lord promised to give his body and blood for us to eat and drink, Peter didn't know how our Lord would do that. But his answer then is our answer today. Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. And so the apostles wouldn't leave. Judas decided to betray our Lord. We're not going to go with that, of course. <clears throat> but Peter's answer still applies to us today. We still believe, you know, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one true Son of the one true God. He established the one true church, gave us the one true faith, and the one true form of worship through him, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. We believe that absolutely, and we know that that will triumph. Um, but I, I think we had a, a viewer, actually, a, uh, a long-time viewer, a very fine supporter, who actually wrote in and asked, what, how, how will the Society of St. Pius V and the Congregation of St. Pius V be reconciled to the Church Universal when um, Christ restores his Church with the prestige and the papacy and so on? How will that reconciliation take place? Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? Yes, well, exactly. Is that worth reading? It's a, it's a short uh, statement there. Sure, yeah. He says, when Christ chooses to restore his universal church and papacy to its former glory and place in this world, how would the reconciliation of the SSPV and CSPV back to the universal church come about and take place? Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> well, see, I find that to be an honest question, straightforward question, but I actually find it to be a false question. Because it presumes, presumes that the Society of St. Pius V and the Congregation of St. Pius V need to be reconciled okay. with the Universal Church. Okay. And the whole point in doing what we're doing and following the course that we are is to remain in union with the Universal Church. I mean, I can stand at the altar and I can pray the Te Igitur at the beginning, you know, the very beginning of the Canon of the Mass. And I can say, to this day, in all honesty, as I'm about to consecrate the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ, I can say that I am one in faith with all of the uh, true believers and uh, pr propagators of the apostolic faith, 
the faith of the apostles. I can say that because that's exactly what I'm all about. That's the whole point. And um, that that doing that and holding to that, clinging to that, does not put you outside the universal church. You have to be able to say that to even be a member of the universal church. Um, there are those who are saying that that they're you know one in faith with Francis who really don't believe that. So essentially, what they're they're deceiving themselves, or, but they can't deceive God. They don't believe that they are one in faith with Francis. And they're saying that they are, as they're standing there about to consecrate the Blessed Sacrament. I can't do that. In good conscience, I can't. But how can one who does that, who actually uh, is, is in the unity of faith with the saints, the martyrs, the doctors of the church, and all of the popes throughout the centuries, how can that, by that very fact, um, put him at variance with the church and require him to be reconciled to the church universal when the time comes that Christ restores it. But I think it's also a question, uh, I think it's also a false question in another way, because it's based upon a presumption that uh, Christ is going to restore the church exactly as it was before. And I don't think that's the case. I think the reign of Mary is going to be more than just a restoration of the status quo of the 1950s and 40s and 30s, or even the, you know, the centuries before. The reign of Mary is going to be so grand, so glorious, that when it does happen, it will be overwhelmingly powerful, beautiful, convincing. Right? <coughs> and I think all of those who have the true faith will have the grace to recognize that this is the work of God. He's restored his church. How would we recognize that, though? How would we recognize, if it comes to that, that Christ actually restores that in his own good time? I mean, you know, our Lord did say that when the Son of Man comes to, returns to earth to judge, do you think he will find faith on earth? The implication to his apostles being not much, or maybe not on earth, maybe down under the earth in the catacombs again. Our Lord talks about coming to judge and what he will find on the face of the earth, so... We have to take that into consideration, too. And our Lord's words, <clears throat> that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, well, we see that right before our very eyes today. So we can't necessarily just presume that, um, uh, certainly not, not that we're going to live to see this great restoration, um, and, and more than the great restoration. But uh, when our Lord does this, <clears throat> We, we are so convinced in the, in, the, in the divine person of our Lord, we don't hesitate to believe that he can do this and he will do this at some future time. We have absolute faith in that. That when that miracle, because it's really a miracle of grace happens, it's going to involve us too. And our Lord is going to not only do this, but he's going to make it known to his faithful ones that this is his doing. It's going to be absolutely crystal clear to them. This is his doing. And just with, with dramatically, quickly, all of those who have the faith will immediately adhere to that. They will all recognize this. This is God's work. This is Christ's work. And they won't have to change their minds about anything. They won't have to adjust their faith or their practice because they're practicing the Catholic faith all along. They will see this happen and they will know this is God's work. 
And this is exactly what I've been praying for all this time. I've never left this. This is, this is where I belong now. So, <clears throat> you know, the question reminds me of this, okay? The question reminds me, <clears throat> how is the prodigal son going to be reconciled with his father? Well, he's going to have to come home, and he's wearing rags, and he's gaunt with hunger, and he's kind of mortified by what he's done, and he's thinking, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to convince my dad to take me back? <clears throat> and he's rehearsing, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me be to you as a hired servant in your house. Right? He's rehearsing that as he's going along. Of course, the father is so moved to compassion. He sees his son, and he <clears throat> that alone uh, moves the father to compassion, takes him into the house, and he has the fatted calf killed, and they have the party to celebrate that his son has come home to him alive. And, um, but when we come back, <clears throat> it's not going to be like that. It's not a matter of coming back. We never left. That's my point. We never left the house. We never left the home. Uh, it's the modernists who have actually um, invaded it, hijacked it, and uh, basically stolen it away. Is that not what St. Athanasius said happened in his day? That's what he said. You know? They have the churches, all right, but we have the faith. And uh, there's just no equality there. And when the, when the uh, Arians had the churches and then were forced to relinquish them, the Catholics didn't have to be reconciled to those churches because that's where they belonged. They were their churches all along. <clears throat> that was their home, you know. And, uh, so, no, we won't need to be reconciled uh, because uh, the, the point in, in continuing to practice the faith that we do is precisely so that we'll never lose it. We'll never leave it in the first place. Uh, we just hope and pray and uh, that uh, if we don't live to see it, children will, their children will, yeah, in good time. Uh, it's God's timing, but uh, we want to set the best example we can of fidelity. And, uh, well, that's what we want to be ourselves. We want to be faithful. We're just trying to be faithful. Right? That's all you're, you're just trying to be faithful. Well, I think you're doing a pretty good job of it, Tom, but <clears throat> I'm not your judge. Thank goodness. <laughs> not even my own judge. We let Christ do the judging here, but we're, we're trying to be faithful. Mm -hmm. Amen. In difficult times. Father, thanks for being here tonight. We appreciate all of your time and everything else that you do. Oh, well, that's mutual, Tom. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.